Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Getting Internet Radio. Today it is Friday, September 17th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Here I am going to present White Nationalist Cognitive Dissonance, Part 3, and it is subtitled, The Tolerance of Evil. This presentation was, more or less, handed to me by some friends. Coming home from an event where David Duke had spoken, I wanted to find a way, once again, to explain and to address his cognitive dissonance, which to me is quite striking. So when I got to my desk, I found that our friend Michael Watcher had already created this image advertising an article I had written in December of 2013 titled The Tolerance of Evil. Then I noticed that our friend Joe from the Christiania Forum had posted a snippet from my commentary on Hosea explaining the failure of America. So it all came together for me, and consequently I could not help but to make this presentation. For those who are new to Christogenia, White Nationalist Cognitive Dissonance Parts 1 and 2 were presented here in the spring of 2015. They did not deal with David Duke, or with any white nationalist in particular, so far as I remember. Attending the League of the South, the annual League of the South National Conference this year in central Alabama, I once more had the questionably pleasurable, that's a tongue twister for me, I'm sorry, the questionably pleasurable experience of listening to another lengthy talk by David Duke, who is probably the world's most recognizing, recognizable living white nationalist. Of course, I am not envious, as I do not reckon myself a mere white nationalist. Being an identity Christian, I hardly expect to be recognizable at all, even in white nationalist circles. And at such affairs, I would really just prefer to blend into the background. Having attended these conferences each year since 2018, for several years, I have purposely ignored Mr. Duke, even though we spent hours within proximity of one another, not only at the conferences, but also in after-hours social settings. However, I believe that I have done this for good reason. I am persuaded that there is a gulf between us, which, perhaps for reason of our personalities, cannot be bridged. If this evokes the words of Christ in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the illusion is not accidental. As the final day of the conference progressed, David Duke was the last speaker and spoke for about 90 minutes. Then, at the end of the conference, David approached me in a group of our friends, where I was compelled to be a gentleman and shake his hand for the very first time. While our encounter only lasted a few seconds. 
Perhaps the next time I see him and have the opportunity to speak, I will broach the subject of some of our differences. Or perhaps it may be better if I ask our common friend, League of the South President Dr. Michael Hill, if he himself can persuade David to listen to this presentation. And that, of course, might make it easy. But I'm willing to speak to David in person when he is ready. This year's talk may also have been the first time that I heard David Duke speak, which was not completely repugnant, at least to me. It is not that I have any personal animosity for Duke, even if I do take jabs at him on occasion. But he does say a lot of things to which I am opposed, both as a Christian and as a member of a Southern Nationalist organization. For example, several times in his talk, he mentioned the Constitution and expressed the desire to take back America. But we know that the Constitution has failed us, although in part it is because we as a people have failed the Constitution, allowing portions of it to be taken out of context while neglecting the objectives which are stated in its preamble. Evidently, the preamble itself was not enough to preserve the Republic, and the Constitution has other inherent problems. The ideals of classical liberalism, which the Constitution and other founding documents of the American Empire express, left no defense against subversion from within, and they are regularly exploited to effect that subversion. Implicit racism is not sufficient to keep a nation holy, and that is also the danger of reducing the commandments of our God from several hundred down to ten at the cost of disregarding the balance. I would also wonder which America David Duke wants to save. America is not a nation. It was formed as a political and economic alliance of 13 different sovereign states or nations in their own right. Duke, does David Duke want to save Franklin Roosevelt's America? which destroyed half of Christendom by allying itself with both bankers and Bolsheviks in order to destroy white Christian Germany and half of Europe along with it? Or does David Duke want to save, let's wind back the clock just a little more, does he want to save the imperialist America of Theodore Roosevelt, which annexed islands filled with aliens and paved the way for Woodrow Wilson and future foreign wars. Does David Duke want to save, let's go back further in time, does he want to save the imperialist America of Abraham Lincoln, which destroyed half of its own white Christian peoples only to unleash the Negro hordes that have ever since been a plague upon us all? Or does David Duke want to save the imperialist America of Thomas Jefferson, which sent troops to Africa in order to protect the interests of primarily Jewish merchants? 
That's the meaning of the lines in the Marine Corps hymn, which sings from the halls of Montezuma to the land of Tripoli. Jefferson sent them to Africa to protect the interests of primarily Jewish merchants. Perhaps David Duke only wants to save the 1789 version of America, which was founded upon documents that are so ambiguous that they actually facilitated all of the later and more treacherous versions of the empire. Truly, it is the people of those original states, those people who need to be saved from America. They don't need to save America. They need to be saved from America. In this, I am comfortable speaking for the League of the South as well as for identity Christians. We know that America cannot be reformed. And that is professed, that fact is professed in League literature. So we wait for it to crumble having a greater assurance as Christians in the imminent fall of mystery Babylon. We do not want to reform America. We do not want to take it back, only to see the same mistakes of liberalism repeated once again. It is not an objective of the League of the South to reform America, although David Duke preaches that in every speech which he makes addressing the League. Rather, whenever we can, we endeavor to contribute to its crumble, and therefore it is our policy to abjure the realm, as the literature of the League of the South describes our objectives. But even this difference, although to us it is certainly an indication of underlying cognitive dissonance, may seem to be, may seem to us, to be a minor issue. When I say us here, I'm referring to identity Christians. What we find most repugnant is when Duke speaks is his frequent abuse of Scripture, his mistaken characterizations of the people of the Old Testament, and even of Christ himself. Thankfully, he did not discuss Scripture. He did not discuss Scripture to any extent in his talk this year. But more than anything, I despise the fact that he has completely accepted and often repeats the Jewish lies about the books which we collectively call the Bible. This problem I will discuss further here a little later on. This is the wedge between myself, and men such as David Duke, and also Kevin McDonald. However, in my experience, as well as in the experiences of close friends who have known Duke for decades, David has always been hostile to aspects, to the major aspects of our Christian identity faith where in personal conversations that I myself have had with Kevin McDonald, he is not hostile to our faith, although he does not accept it for himself. From what I have observed, McDonald has an extremely secular worldview, 
But while David Duke also often claims to be religious, his worldview is really just as secular as McDonald's. However, while Duke was the last speaker on the final day of this year's conference, I was given the unexpected privilege of being the first. The master of ceremonies, Rick Tyler, had approached me barely five minutes before the conference schedule was to commence and asked me to conduct an opening prayer. I consider, I consider Rick Tyler to be a good friend, and of course, I was honored. Not that Rick and I agree about everything, but he is a sincere man, a sincere Christian, an identity Christian, and a good friend. In his kindness, the day before, Rick had promoted our work at, Christ at Christagenia during some of his closing remarks, and we were both pleasantly surprised and quite grateful for that. So, while I am not a presenter of prayer in the traditional sense, nevertheless, I could not decline. Then suddenly as I told Rick that I would be happy to conduct the opening prayer, I realized that I had an opportunity. <laughs> an opportunity that I could not pass. After accepting Rick's invitation, I had about three or four minutes to sort out my thoughts and come up with something to say. I am not the man to lead traditional prayers. Both Michael Hill, Michael Tubbs, and even Rick Tyler himself all do that much better than I can do it. More realistically, I see myself as a lecturer who gives two-hour presentations that take much preparation, which are usually and purposely not understood unless the listener already has an understanding of our Christian identity faith. Then, far from being a public speaker, I present those lectures sitting here at the comfort of my own desk. But I have spoken in public a few times in the course of my ministry, so I certainly did not have any fear. The 118th Psalm came to mind, and verses 7 through 12 actually echoed many of the sentiments which were expressed by the speakers of the previous day. However, in my opinion, it is necessary for me to provide at least some background information for a listener to understand why I would even present such a passage, meaning the 118th Psalm, verses 7 through 12, as a prayer. Most denominational Christians would think, this man is crazy. It certainly is not the typical prayer men may be accustomed to hearing from their denominational preachers. So I made two statements which were purposely aimed directly at David Duke. That was the opportunity that I saw when Rick Tyler asked me to lead the opening prayer. First, I had proclaimed that there are two versions of history, the Jewish version and the truth. I may have qualified that statement a little better, but I did only have about three minutes to prepare, and it certainly is true. History may be written by the victors, but the people who we know as Jews 
have always financed the victors. So while that thought did not come to me at that particular moment, putting my statement in context, I professed that Jews are devils and that they have always been devils and that we, meaning white Europeans, are indeed the true children of God. Then I asserted that anyone who insists on repeating the Jewish claims concerning the Old Testament is purposely shilling for the Jews. They are purposeful shills for Jewry. That also needed some background, as many of our people who have come to accept the Jewish version of the Old Testament they do so unwilling, unwittingly. They're told this by denominational pastors that the Jews are God's chosen people and they don't have the knowledge or information required in order to refute that because it is a lie. However, David Duke has been told this on many occasions by others and he has always rejected it. Of course, concerning this prayer, I can only paraphrase my remarks now. But I needed to send that message once again and watch David as he seemed to sit listening intently. I will not relent until he takes the time to understand. I won't let off on this subject with David Duke. He can ignore me forever. He could not approach me and speak to me at league conferences, but we're both going to be there for as long as both of our hearts beat, and he will have to see me at every conference. I am not going to let off of him as long as he thinks that Jews, that devils, are God's chosen people. So following that portion of my prayer, the passages from the psalm were presented as a prayer, and then I closed by making some remarks concerning the victory which our race is assured so long as our God is with us. And I will get to that portion later in this presentation, much later. The entire prayer may have taken only three or four minutes, but I pray that David Duke did hear my remarks and that he considers them. If he's truly a man, he will consider them. If he's truly a man, he will speak to me about this. For a long time, I have a good friend named Danny Updegraff. From what I remember, Danny was at Clifton's home in Ohio long before I ever met Clifton, and they were good friends. He was raised in California, where his father, Robert Updegraff, was a member of Colonel William Gale's Christian Identity Church, where Danny was raised. He was raised in that church. I don't remember which town the church was in. I could probably find it out on my own website, on the Wesley Swift website, where I have some of Gale's newsletters and writings. But it was somewhere outside of Los Angeles. Danny told me that when he was still young, and I, I actually contacted Danny this morning, to verify some of this information because it was sort of fuzzy in my own recollection and I needed some details. 
Danny told me that when he was still young, David Duke had visited the area and stayed at his house. It was Sunday, February 16, 1975, and Duke was there to speak at a white nationalist conference at the Mayfair Hotel on that day in Los Angeles. Danny recollects that Duke had radio interviews in Los Angeles twice that week on Monday and Tuesday. He also described for me how he remembered his father, Robert, explaining both Christian and Jewish identity to Duke, but that he had rejected it. Robert had also told David about the Talmud and the secret hatred which Jews have for Christians and many other things. Duke wasn't born with that knowledge. He had to get it from somewhere. Evidently, one of those men which he had gotten it from was Robert Updegraff. But there are others. Driving with Duke to a radio station in Los Angeles, Robert urged Duke to expose the Jews as usurpers, that they really were not the people whom they claimed to be, but Duke would not listen. Perhaps Duke had later accepted some of what he was told, but continues to claim to this very day that the Jews are the people of the Old Testament and that Jesus was a Jew. Danny Updegraff, as well as another friend, General Mosley, a good friend and native of central Louisiana, who has been in white nationalist circles ever since the days of George Lincoln Rockwell and Gerald L.K. Smith. Danny and Gerald has, have also both told me that James Warner was a longtime Duke friend and content, companion. I am informed that together, Warner and Duke spent much time on the West Coast organizing clan chapters. People new to Christian identity or Southern nationalism may not recognize Warner's name. But for many decades, too, he, too, was a torchbearer of our common faith. Warner's organization was Christian Vanguard. And out of Metairie, Metairie, Louisiana, which is just north of New Orleans, he distributed Christian identity sermons and historical tracts for many years. In prison, I had received many of those sermons and tracts from James Warner's organization. If I am not mistaken, his office, and I might be mistaken by this, but I believe his office was destroyed in Hurricane Katrina and the operation ceased to exist. I never had the privilege of meeting James Warner, and believe he may have already passed, but Updegraff and Gerald Mosley both knew James Warner personally, and they both knew that James Warner knew David Duke personally, and Warner's, of Warner's exploits with David Duke. Now, we can understand why Duke might find it difficult to accept the identification of white Europeans with the ancient Israelites, as that requires much study that is outside of the scope of Duke's particular areas of study. 
it is not too difficult to understand. But one does need to take the time necessary to examine all of the evidence, which we have gathered, already gathered over many decades of research. Just because someone is a historian does not make them experts in all areas of history. But saying, I'm a historian, is not a license to stay stupid or to ignore or even to summarily dismiss such evidence as Duke has repeatedly done. But the other half of the equation, the truth about Jewish identity, is far less difficult to discern. Both the historical and the scriptural evidence that the Jews are not the Israelites of the Old Testament is clear. And on occasion, Jews themselves admit it. So for David Duke to reject it continually is a certain indication that he has an agenda. Accepting the lie that the Jews are the Israelites of the Bible is equivalent to being an accomplice to all of the crimes of the Jews, which the Jews had been able to commit against Christendom because of the mistaken belief that the Jews are the Israelites of the Bible. That is because the Jews themselves use the vaunted position of their claims of being God's chosen people as the moral foundation for their treachery. It is not giving the devil his due. Rather, it is giving the devil something which he is not due and something for which he hungers, but to which he is not entitled. Once that foundation is removed, a foundation built upon lies, only then can the true nature of the devil be exposed. In all of his speeches, David Duke elaborates on what he calls Jewish supremacy and tries to illustrate its various manifestations in recent history as well as in current events. All of that is fine, and we agree with most of his points in principle. Although on many occasions, we see and we have explained the same phenomena from a different perspective, independently of Duke. We don't need David Duke to know about Jewish treachery and so-called Jewish supremacy. Christians have been doing this for decades before Duke. Henry Ford, for example, had exposed Jewish supremacy over and over again and the methods of how they achieved supremacy in the international Jew. But something that is not well known in white nationalist circles is that William J. Cameron, the man who was Henry Ford's editor at the Dear Dearborn Independent, the man who actually researched and wrote a lot of that material for Henry Ford that Henry Ford was happy to publish under his own name, William J. Cameron, he was an identity Christian. Imagine that.
he was exposing Jews at least three decades before David Duke was born. He didn't invent this. He didn't invent these concepts of Jewish supremacy. He's not the man that uncovered this. Henry Ford's got him beat by 60 years. William J. Cameron, his editor, was an identity Christian who wrote a book titled The Covenant People. So David Duke literally took the truth from identity Christians, removed God from the equation, upheld the Jewish lies about the Bible, and he peddles that, and it's not truth. His cognitive dissonance becomes apparent when at the same time that he complains about Jewish supremacy, he also professes that Jews are the people of the Old Testament, identifying them as the Israel of the scriptures. So while David Duke complains about Jewish supremacy, at the same time, he is justifying Jewish supremacy by recognizing them as the Israel of the Christian Bible. Duke is not only tolerating evil, but putting evil in the position of being as God. Not God, but as God. Of course, Duke himself does not see what he is doing in that same manner. But that is precisely what he is doing in the minds of Bible-believing Christians. Apparently, this is the result of another problem. David Duke is not a true Christian. He may call himself a Christian or pass himself off as a cultural Christian. But if he were a true Christian, he would not simply repeat Jewish claims about the scriptures. Rather, as he also identifies himself as a historian, he should examine the evidence because the facts of history refute those Jewish claims. Either one is an identity Christian and rightfully rejects the Jewish claims about Scripture, or one is a Judaized Christian, a denominational Christian, and accepting the Jewish claims understands that he, he must not oppose the Jews since the Judaized Christians believe Jewish claims about Scripture while accepting that the Scripture is the Word of God. They may believe, but they may, but they believe errantly. And taking Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 out of context, they even believe that they will be cursed if they say anything negative about Jews. On that basis, Jews as a group can get away with practically anything. And that is the true source of Jewish supremacy. That misunderstanding is certainly the true source of Jewish supremacy in Protestant America, the Catholic America. That is a different story. The truth is that Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, never applied to Jews at any time in history, and especially in Abraham's time.
I'm sorry, I'm typing. I'm adding a lot to my original notes, and I'm typing. The first hurdle, present, preventing Duke from arriving at the truth, is that to David Duke, the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is little more than a Jewish storybook, while to true Christians, it is the Word of God. To David Duke, Jews are merely a self-appointed chosen people. But to Christians, the Israelites of the Old Testament certainly are the elect chosen people of God. Then, since the Bible says that God will elevate the people of Israel above all other nations, Christians take that promise seriously, as they should. Therefore, so long as Christians errantly believe that the promise applies to Jews, then Jews will be able to maintain their position of supremacy in Christian society regardless of what David Duke says about Jewish supremacy. In other words, Duke, for his entire career, has been shooting himself in the foot because he's rejected the truth espoused by identity Christians. David Duke thrashes at the branches, but he never aims for the trunk in order to get to the root of this problem. We know, and we have demonstrated many times in various presentations at Christogenia, that the people known as Jews are not the Israelites of the Old Testament. Any Christian who truly studies and believes the New Testament cannot possibly accept that the Jews are God's chosen people. And in my notes, I have a little trademark symbol next to that. We like to make quips that if Moses was a Jew, he would have been crying to Pharaoh about the Shoah. Or if Joshua and the Israelites who had invaded the land of Canaan were Jews. They would have done so with pencils and briefcases rather than with swords and axes. If the Old Testament were a Jewish book, it would have been a banking manual. We have even quipped that if Jesus were a Jew, he would have been doing stand-up comedy instead of parables. But whether the jokes are funny or not, those statements are absolutely true. <clears throat> that if the Israelites of the Old Testament were Jews, the Bible would be a very different book. But it is more likely that there would be no Bible at all, and we would all be lost in the Stone Age of Babylonian paganism. On a serious note, we can walk through the historical records found in Book 13 of the Antiquities of the Judeans by Flavius Josephus, or Book 16, of Strabo's geography, and correlating them with statements of both Christ and his apostles found in the New Testament, we can prove beyond doubt that the modern Jews are in large part descended from the ancient Edomites, and only to a very small degree from the ancient Israelites. If a believer rejects this evidence, then he is a Jew to a much greater extent than he can claim to be a Christian. 
because he is found in opposition to Christ and the apostles and in agreement with Satan, which, speaking collectively, is the Jews whom Christ himself had identified as the synagogue of Satan. If Joshua and the Israelites were Jews, they may have lynched Phineas after he killed a fellow Israelite for attempting to impregnate a shiksa, an alien woman. If Paul of Tarsus were a Jew, he would have given up tent-making for loan-sharking rather than for the gospel of Christ. If Lydia of Philippi were a Jewess, perhaps Paul may have found her selling pornography, or even herself, rather than purple cloth. In other words, there is nothing about any of the protagonists of our Christian Bible which reflects the character of the Jews. The Israelites were promised a land of milk and honey, yet about 90% of the world's Jews are lactose intolerant, and only about 5% of white Europeans suffer from lactose intolerance. Maybe at next year's League of the South Conference, I should bring quarts of milk to the after-hour social gatherings rather than pints of beer. John the Baptist had identified the religious leaders of Judea as a race of vipers, or properly, the offspring of vipers, telling them that the axe had already been laid to the root of the tree as each tree which would not produce good fruit would be cut down and burned. Calling them the offspring of vipers, he was speaking a literal truth, as they were Edomites and the political appointees of the Edomite kings of Judea, and they were not Israelites. Until David Duke realizes these truths and attacks the root of the problem, he will forever remain ineffectual, and we shall have to leave him behind, consigning his life's work to the dustbins of the future. But David Duke's confused view of history and scriptures is not the only manifestation of cognitive dissonance which I had witnessed last weekend. David's urge to save America is also not the only example of cognitive dissonance which I had experienced, which I had witnessed last weekend. Several speakers complained at great length about what the devils, which is to say the Jews, are and have been doing to us. And we have heard it all a thousand times, if not 10,000. Some speakers, like Hunter Wallace, I'll call him Hunter Wallace here, clung to American politics where there are no solutions. James Edwards spoke about his own radio program, The Political Cesspool, and problems that he has had with our common enemies. Some of those stories are encouraging as they show that even denominational Christians can occasionally stand up for what is right. 
Among the other speakers, Eddie Miller repeated a Jewish crimes which, with which white nationalists have taken issue, such as the USS Liberty incident or events in South Africa. Yet Eddie Miller seems to have come to white nationalism and to Christian identity relatively recently. So he may not even realize that these topics have been spoken about exhaustively in our circles for many years. While the conference speakers were certainly all sincere, and perhaps helpful to those few in the audience who have not been Southern nationalists or even white nationalists for very long, there are more important matters which they did not discuss or even mention. In my opinion, they failed to discuss these greater matters because they all suffer from another sort of cognitive dissonance. In David Duke's case, this cognitive dissonance is even greater than his blatant misidentification of the Jews or his insistence on saving America, which is absolutely ridiculous in my opinion. But first, before I criticize the speakers at that last conference for what they have sorely missed, let me add a disclaimer. And I feel I'm compelled to add this. I do not want anyone to think that I, myself, may be lobbying to speak at any league functions. First, I would never expect to be a speaker at a League of the South function, as I am more of a Bible and history lecturer than an inspiring public speaker. And the minutiae of scripture, language, and ancient history simply aren't very inspiring subjects at League venues. Secondly, I am personally much more comfortable writing and publishing my work at Christagenia which is a venue much more suitable to the material I produce. That way I could talk for two hours and sit here and relax and have a beer. Or, I'm sorry, perhaps I should have a glass of milk. <laughs> but from the viewpoint of a pastor, practically all of these speakers spoke about many of the evil things which world Jewry has accomplished among our people, how they have come to rule over us through usury, how they have flooded us with aliens, how they have taken the best of our youth and killed them off in foreign and unjust wars, and much more. But they do not understand that all of these things are not the core problem, and rather they are only the effect of a much greater problem. The real problem for which we suffer all of these other things is our own sin or our acceptance of sin, the tolerance of evil. The alt-right, for all intents and purposes, is dead. Certain media outlets are now gloating that Richard Spencer, whose mentor was a Jew, and who may very well be part Jewish himself, is now penniless in Iowa, 
and that local restaurants won't even serve him, even if he had any money. The sodomite named Milo was caught rationalizing pedophilia, as if that should be any surprise. The Jew Mike Enoch is now going by his real name and trying to transfer his alt-right internet popularity into a real-life political party, which, I guarantee, shall also fail. The traditional workers' party went down the latrine in a trailer park drama, and Matthew Heimbach became the latest cuck for the Southern Poverty Law Center. As Dr. Michael Hill often points out, the League of the South is the only major right-wing or significant right-wing political group which had participated in the demonstration at Lee Park in Charlottesville, which is still intact. But then again, the alt-right was destined to fail because it was libertarian at its core, and all of its supposed leaders were either perverts or Jews. And once again, so far as I know, the League of the South is the only organization at Charlottesville which is professedly and overtly Christian, something which is explicit in many of its position papers. Being Christians, League members should be brought to understand the consequences of sin as well as the consequences of righteousness and the fact that tolerating evil is just as bad in the eyes of our God as committing evil. Something which is no longer taught in most denominational churches. The evil deeds of the Jews and of all of the aliens who are currently overrunning our lands are the effect of our troubles and they are not the cause. Libertarianism is evil and it cannot be Christian as it permits devils to coexist with Christians. It forces Christians to acknowledge the right of devils to exist at all. And that is something which always results in the destruction of Christian ideals. And ultimately, of Christian communities and nations. While Kevin McDonald did not speak at this year's conference, both he and James Edwards have been active in the American Freedom Party, which overtly woos libertarians and which expresses libertarian ideals. Libertarianism was also the predominant political preference of most alt-right figures, except that some professed having been former libertarians. And Richard Spencer was quoted as having once said that he is libertarian only when he wants to be. In our opinion, his lack of principles is clearly the reason for his decline. And at least most of the others continue to embrace certain libertarian ideals which should be odious to Christians. We should not be forced to live with devils, to coexist in communities alongside of devils. 
in an October 2015 presentation here, which I had first written in 2013, titled Libertarianism Cannot Be Christian, I said the following. If man believes that his rights are endowed by the Creator, as the founders of this nation recognized, then man understands that those rights are inalienable. If man believes that his morals are passed down from God, as the founders of this nation also recognized, then man understands that those morals are immutable. Yet man has allowed the Jew to litigate God out of modern society, and therefore now we have no rights and no morals. Then, in a 2013 discussion of America's Christian founders, I cited Thomas Paine's Common Sense, where he had written, but where, and this is a direct quote from Thomas Paine's Common Sense, <clears throat> but where, says some, is the king of America? I'll tell you, friend, he reigns above and does not make havoc of mankind like the royal brute of Britain, referring, of course, to King George III. Yet, that we may not appear to be defective even in earthly honors, let a day be solemnly set apart for proclaiming the charter. Let it be brought forth and placed on the divine law, the word of God. Let a crown be placed thereon, by which the world may know that so far as we approve as monarchy, that in America the law is king. For as in absolute governments the king is law, so in free countries the law ought to be king, and there ought to be no other. But lest any ill use should afterwards arise, let the crown at the conclusion of the ceremony be demolished and scattered among the people whose right it is. In other words, Thomas Paine knew that America must recognize the law of God as king, or that America should not stand at all, where the rights of rulership should rightfully be returned to the people. Paine may have been a tool for Freemasonry, but intellectually, he was really not a Freemason. And that's just an unfortunate circumstance of history. While Paine's later history is checkered, as he was living in France during most of the time of the French Revolution, Robespierre put him in jail and wanted his head, his words nevertheless represented the beliefs of many Americans of his time. Law must come from God, and God's law must be supreme. Or, while imagining that we govern ourselves, we will forever be the victims of tyrants. And that is precisely what has happened to America. 
at least most of the other founders understood that for our natural rights to be maintained, it must also be realized and accepted that those rights have come from God. And for that reason alone, they cannot rightfully be taken away by men. Both law and rights emanating from God and not from government, they cannot be tailored to suit the whims of men. However, it is clear that one fault of the Constitution is that it did not explicitly express these ideals which most of the founders had shared. So in the end, the so-called Bill of Rights is a doormat for the devil. But the founders also understood that the natural rights of man coming from God could only be maintained in a godly society. Tolerating evil, men deserve neither laws nor the rights which emanate from God. Tolerating evil, we don't deserve either. If one does not keep his laws, then one does not deserve his grace. Instead, the inevitable result is punishment. And in this modern age, that punishment has come to us through the hands of the Jews, who are his enemies. For the sins of ancient Israel, in the 74th Psalm, Asaph, a prophet of the captivity, had written in a prayer to God, that thine enemies roar in the midst of thy congregations. They set up their signs for ensigns. So it was then, so they also do that same thing today. In October of 2013, I wrote an article titled The Tolerance of Evil. I wrote it for an editorial in our old Saxon Messenger magazine, a magazine that I wish I could still publish. As for the magazine itself, after the friend who did the layout and editing had found it too risky to continue, as she lives in an oppressed country on an island which is close to Europe, at the same time, we were forced to relocate, we meaning myself and my wife, we were forced to relocate to a new home following Hurricane Michael. And then, soon after, the printer canceled our account without even notifying us, so I was compelled to shelve the project. Since we gave the electronic issues, the PDFs, away freely at Christagenia, and since we never really sold many printed copies, if I sold 20 copies in a month, I was absolutely ecstatic, and that would give me a profit of about $20. For that and other personal reasons, I was compelled to decide that the project was not really worth reviving. Much of the balance of this presentation will be based on that old Saxon Messenger article, as it is as timely now 
as it was then. And this is the tolerance of evil. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not. Neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. And all the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods. And all of you are children of the Most High. This has to be taken in context of the psalmist writing about the relationship between Yahweh God and the children of Israel. This cannot be removed from that context and applied to anyone else. All of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Anyone who followed my rather recent or relatively recent commentary on the wisdom of Solomon, which was actually 30 podcasts of at least an hour in length, perhaps an hour and a half. It was actually quite lengthy, perhaps about 40 hours of material. Anyone who followed that would understand that the progression of wickedness goes from idolatry to the, to the oppression of the weak among one's own people, and then on to despising and turning one's back on one's own people, and then on to race mixing and other much more significant sins. And that is the progression of evil underlying the explanations of the wicked as opposed to the good in the wisdom of Solomon. A thorough study of both scripture and classical history shall lead to the conclusion that the white nations of what was formerly called Christendom have indeed descended from the ancient children of Israel who were the only branch of the white race accepted by Yahweh God as his children. Since that time, all of the other white nations have been overrun and destroyed by aliens, whether they be red, yellow, brown, or black. Now, in modern times, the nations of Christendom, the remnant of the white race residing in Europe and her colonies, are also being overrun by aliens. The words of the 82nd Psalm were indeed fulfilled 2,000 years ago in Jesus Christ. Of course, I should call him Yahshua Christ. For many days in the temple at Jerusalem, Yahshua Christ stood in its courts and chastised the Edomite Jews 
demonstrating to the remnant of the children of Israel amongst them that they were indeed wicked and that they could never be otherwise. However, because in modern times the white children of God have once again accepted the persons of the wicked, the wicked have been able to infiltrate and corrupt Christian society just as they had corrupted the society of ancient Judea and then that of the greater Roman Empire. Once again, in modern times, all the foundations of the earth are out of course. In white nationalist circles today, those circles which may be perceived as the vanguard of a new awakening, and these are my words in 2013, and a new white racial consciousness, we have many men who are also tempted to accept the persons of the wicked. That was before the alt-right and the outright acceptance of Jews and faggots, who certainly are all wicked. So when the occasional Jew professes a loathing for the deeds of his fellow Jews, they are quick to put, speaking of white nationalists, they are quick to put that Jew on a pedestal, thereby legitimizing the erroneous idea that there could possibly be good Jews. Of this, the, the signal examples are Steve Bannon of Breitbart, who's a Jew, and Ezra Levant of Rebel Media, who's a Jew. They're the signal alt-right examples. There are many more Jews leading the alt-right. In fact, they are practically all Jews. What the fuck? Saying there are good Jews, that is like saying there could possibly be good devils. For Christ told us in another place that a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Trees being an allegory for races of men, there are indeed no good antichrists and Antichrists cannot have good children. In that same discourse, which is found in Matthew chapter 7, our Redeemer warned us to beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Therefore, we must not only reject the Jews, but we must also reject the ideas which Jews rather persistently attempt to interject into our discourse. The Jews, always gathering grapes or figs from thorns and thistles, perpetually endeavor to assemble parties of diverse races and continue to identify them as nations. Although a multi-ethnic state 
actually stands in defiance to the original meaning of the term nation. Even by his own presence in a white society, the Jew has gathered grapes from thorns. The Jew himself being that thorn. Likewise, one Negro in a thousand escapes the inner city slums and is pushed to completion through the corrupted educational system by this Jew-dominated liberal society. Then, because the occasional Negro later takes a disestablishmentarian position on some topic or event which happens to resonate with white nationalist sympathies, certain white nationalists are quick to put such a Negro onto a pedestal or at least give him a space on their soapbox. Doing this, they convey the idea that Negroes can also be good, while the rest of their kind are destroying whites throughout the cities of Europe and America. As a digression, David Duke has continually gathered grapes from thorns. He has praised Ilhan Omar, the Islamic woman voted into Congress in Minnesota. We do not need godless Muslims as allies against godless Jews. And historically, Duke should know that outside of Palestine, Muslims have forever been the allies and the tools of Jews in all of their treachery against Christians. He has done many podcasts and interviews with Tommy Sotomayor, which is, I'll say which and not who, because he's an it and not a person, which is some sort of American Negro with a Hispanic surname. I don't even know what the hell he is. The two are often described as good friends. Duke has also promoted the Negro James Manning. In fact, James Manning, I should say the Negro who is known in English as James Manning, is on the front page of Duke's website this very day. Duke has done podcasts with Jews seeking their agreement. He's had at least short-term partnership with the Jews. But honestly, I don't remember their names, so I probably should not even mention it. But I did know their names in the past. It's just that to me, Jews are extremely forgetful. <laughs> they aren't worthy to remember. The Jews that Duke had, has partnership with, to me, aren't worthy to remember. I'm certain I am certain that some of, I'm sorry, I'm tripping over myself. I am certain that some of our friends will remember those names. We do not need Negroes to tell us about the evil nature of Negroes. And we do not need Jews to tell us about the evil nature of Jews, just like we do not need mosquitoes to explain the behavior of mosquitoes. Continuing with the 2013 article, The Tolerance of Evil, I wrote, 
that if your cabin is infested with termites, then every termite must be destroyed in order to ensure its survival. So it is within white nations. There can be no good Jews, and there can be no good Negroes. And such a sympathy goes for the other non-white races as well. Otherwise, white nations cannot survive. Therefore, white nationalists who coddle non-whites are like double agents sleeping with the enemy. For while they coddle Jews and Negroes, who they think to be good, the vast majority of both Jews and Negroes continue in their endeavor to destroy the balance of white society. Rather, as the psalm says, white nationalists must seek to defend the poor and fatherless, to do justice to the afflicted and needy, to deliver the poor, to poor and needy, to rid them out of the hand of the wicked. The tolerance of evil, the acceptance of the persons of the wicked, has always been our downfall in America, and this is a digression, in America, this began when Jews like Moses Hayes in Boston, a rich merchant Jew, started investing large sums of money into Harvard University. In America, this started when Jews like David Franks and his family came to own the first central bank in Philadelphia as far back as under the Articles of Confederation. This isn't new in America. This didn't start in the 1700s or in the 1800s or in the 1900s. This started in the 1600s. When Cotton Mather was circuiting in New England and going around to all the other New England preachers, and convincing them to accept usury for the good of the economy. And all of New England Christianity was perverted. And that's why, that's the real reason why you might recognize the name of Cotton Mather today. The Jews don't tell you that. The books don't tell you that, but it's true. Most reformers, most Protestants actually rejected usury, understanding the evils of usury. And that was all perverted because Calvin accepted it. And then the Puritans accepted it. That's another digression. The author of the 133rd Psalm said, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And indeed it is. But in order for whites to ever even be able to approach some sort of unity, they must first put away any notion they sh that they should ever accept the wicked and the ungodly, which includes all of the Jews, the bastards, and the non-white races of the world. To accept elements of our enemies is to be anti-white and a traitor to one's own kith and kin. That is the end of that short article. But it certainly is not the end of everything we must say concerning the tolerance of evil.
But before we commence, I'm going to paraphrase a portion of my February 2012 commentary on Hosea chapter 13, where the opening verse of the chapter reads, When Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel, meaning when Ephraim was humble, that Yahweh God exalted him. But when he offended in Baal, he died. In James chapter 4, we read, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Submitting oneself to the will of God, that is true humility. When we submit ourselves to Yahweh, our God, he exalts us. When we rebel against his word, he humbles us by punishing us at the hands of our enemies. Israel, ancient Israel, I have to add a few qualifying words to this. Ancient Israel was a great nation, whether or not David Duke and, and the Jews believe that, because they don't, but it can be established in history. Ancient Israel was a great nation because it was a just nation. And it was a just nation because a just nation is a nation that is obedient to God. When Israel went off into sin, it degenerated. The American Empire, which at the time when it was founded was only a political experiment, is also a failure for that very reason, and now it is also in degeneracy. The idea that a nation could be both great and immoral is a Jewish conception, and it cannot last or even exist. You cannot have a great society in immorality. It will no longer be great but rather, it will destroy itself in its sin. Immorality is satanic and destroys every nation which experiments with attempts to give it any legitimacy. When the Jews want to destroy a nation, they begin by promoting immorality, and that is precisely what they did in America. They are the historic purveyors of usury, gambling, prostitution, sodomy, miscegenation, pornography, and other sorts of vain entertainment and every other sin on account of which we as a people have fallen. That leads to another problem and another reason why we cannot save America in spite of the cognitive dissonance of David Duke. The Yankee and the West Coast states are populated with millions, hundreds of millions of perverts. I should say perhaps tens of millions of perverts, but it's in the high tens. Many which are now leeching into the Christian states of the South, Midwest, and Rocky Mountain areas. We cannot live with these perverts. We cannot tolerate their evil. If we desire to please our God, if we wish to see his blessings upon our race, then we must separate ourselves from these people. We must not seek their peace.
In Romans chapter 1, Paul of Tarsus explained the source of their sins. He told them that they abandoned the truth of God for idolatry. And for that reason, their men and their women were being given up to sodomy. So sodomy itself was not the core of the problem, which was the decadence of imperial Rome. Rather, idolatry was the core, and sodomy was one natural result of the core. With that basis, Paul mentioned some of the other results where he said that just as they do not think it fit to have Yahweh or God in their knowledge, Yahweh handed them over to a reprobate mind to do things not fitting, being filled with all injustice, fornication, greediness, wickedness, full of envy, murder, strife, treachery, malignity, slanderers, loud talkers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, pretentious contrivers of evil, disobedient to parents, void of understanding, covenant breakers, heartless, merciless. And covenant breakers in that context means that they couldn't even keep their promises. And then, speaking of these same people, he wrote, such as these, who knowing the judgments of Yahweh, that they practicing such things are worthy of death, not only they who caused them, but also they approving of those committing them. Where Paul said, but also they approving of those committing them. He was not speaking necessarily of those approving of the sins but of those who are accepting of the people who commit such sins, which, include, which includes the sodomy that he had described earlier. Likewise, fornication describes race mixing as well as things such as prostitution. The word may literally mean prostitution, but to commit miscegenation, to race mix with other races and nations is to commit a form of prostitution. You're mixing with those nations because you've already sold your asses to them. As Jude describes fornication as going after strange flesh. And as Paul of Tarsus had also used the same word, the same Greek word in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in reference to a race-mixing event described in the book of Numbers in chapter 25 of the book of Numbers. Later, in that same chapter of Numbers, Phineas was memorialized because he took a spear and ran it through a race-mixer and the woman with which he was lying, thereby staying a plague upon Israel. In the toleration of evil, we assure ourselves a share in the suffering when evil is punished. We are never going to be successful as an organization, as a movement, as a state, 
as a confederacy, as a race, or especially as America, if we continue to tolerate evil. So we must put away the Jews and all of their amusements through which they have lured us into sin. We must separate ourselves from other races so that we may once again be holy, a word which means separated and devoted to the purposes of God as our race was destined to be. That includes putting away movies, television, gambling casinos, organized sports, and anything else which the world offers us as a distraction from looking after the well-being of our own kith and kin. But more importantly, we cannot accept sinners even if those sinners are among our own kith and kin. I am a man who has totally forgotten six of his own children because they despise me for my positions on scripture, history, and life. So I've done this. I've done this on several occasions because some of my children certainly do partake of some of these sins. If a brother or sister, a son or a daughter is a fornicator, an adulterer, a sodomite, we must separate from them until they repent and depart from that behavior. Being a fornicator, repentance means that they themselves must separate from their own mongrel children, as we read in Ezra chapter 10. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives or husbands and such as are born of them, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law that law which Thomas Paine said should be king over America in a God-fearing nation. People generally govern and police themselves. There is never any need for tyranny, and a free and just society flourishes. In a degenerate and immoral nation, where sin is upheld by law and so-called rights for deviants and aliens are legislated into existence, tyranny naturally results because those so-called rights are unnatural and must be forced upon the people. In the modern world, a police state is the inevitable result of a degenerate state. There's no escaping it. Today, you have a police state because we are degenerate. We are basically a degenerate people. We are a sinful people. If you want to get rid of the police state, stop the sin. Repent. That's the only way. If 
people won't repent. You must separate yourself from them. That's the only way. There is no other way. Read the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Sets all the examples for us that we need. The children of Israel sinned. They followed the ways of Baal. They started sodomy and, and race mixing and sacrificing their children into the fires of Moloch like we do today in abortion clinics everywhere. And they were conquered and overcome and ruled tyrannically by the Amorites or by the Philistines or by the Edomites or by any other outside group. And the burden was not lifted until they repented of their sin and cried out to their God. It's no different. Things are not. You might be a sophist. You might be a smartass. You might be an evolutionist like David Duke. I don't care who you are. You're not going to do better than what the children of Israel did in the Old Testament. God will not be mocked, and there is a God. And evolutionists are fools. There is no other formula. This formula is tried, and it's true, and it's proven again and again and again in history. I wrote, I'm sorry, I just need a drink. I wrote in a 2011 article titled Philadelphia that Jeffersonian liberalism held the ideal that a God-fearing Christian nation could govern itself and should therefore be free of the tyranny of either church or monarch. Jewish liberalism has taken God out of the nation and imposed a tyranny that either church or monarch could only envy. In other words, Jewish liberalism has created a tyranny much stronger than any ever imposed by a church or a king. Perhaps because with this system of this modern system of Jewish liberalism, the people who are enslaved actually believe that they are free, while also fervently and religiously believing that their liberal ideals, which are actually contrary to Christian ideals, are both righteous and just. So they defend liberalism with religious fervor. It's incredible. In this modern world, we can now clearly see that sin is forced upon us by government. But that too is the result of our own sin. As Paul of Tarsus had explained in Romans chapter 13, and I understand that the explanation is obfuscated by poor translations, but this is what he explained. In that chapter, he described government as a punishment from God. The Jews are not only our personal or racial enemies, but also the enemies of our God, for which he himself had described them as the synagogue of Satan. Satan meaning the adversary or the enemy. If we desire success and survival in the face of the enemies of our God, 
we can only have victory according to the very terms which have been spelled out by our God. As the Apostle Paul had written in his second epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 10, we must have a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. If we think for one moment that we can revenge disobedience while we ourselves remain disobedient, we are only kidding ourselves and we are not serious about our cause. White nationalists continue about all the deeds and crimes of the enemy, and so can identity Christians. But only identity Christians know how to properly identify the enemy and also what we must do to overcome them. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of white European people and civilization. And good night.